0: Father in heaven, you've heard our prayer. We ask just for one more gift in addition. We pray for the gift of your Holy Spirit, which is the only effectual teacher of truth. And we pray this in the name of Jesus and claim the merits of his holy and most precious blood. Amen. Today we're going to be dealing with the subject, the angel of the covenant, but it comes under the subheading of the judgment is set. I want you to look in your Bibles in Psalms 37 and verse 28. Psalms 37 and verse 28. When you have it, just say amen. Some of you are very quick. Psalms 37 and verse 28. I want you to see what the Bible says here. Psalms 37 and verse 28, the Bible says, For the Lord loveth judgment. What does the Lord love? This morning you're going to see without question why God loves judgment. The Bible says, For the Lord loveth judgment and forsaketh not his saints. They are preserved forever. But the seed of the wicked shall be what? The Lord loves judgment. I ask the question in my mind when I read the Bible, I ask questions. Why does God love judgment? What is it about judgment that God so desires but God's people hate? Did you hear what I said? God loves judgment, but the people of God, when you say the word judgment, it causes all this fear and this anxiety and this distrust as if God is against his people. I want us to think about this. I want to put something else on the screen. And mind you, I just want you to read it. I want you to get the principle from it. And notice what it says here. It says, when we as a people understand what this book means to us, there will be seen among us a great revival. What kind of revival? revival. We do not understand fully the lessons that it teaches, notwithstanding the injunction given to us, search and study it. We don't understand fully. I wonder what these books are. When the books of Daniel and what? Revelation Revelation are better understood, believers will have an entirely different religious experience. And I pause here with this thought. Entirely different means what? It's not the same. Is that right? The normality, the form and fashion would not be what it is if the people of God studied the books of Daniel and Revelation as they should. Their religious experience will be entirely different. They will be given such glimpses of the open gates of heaven that heart and mind will be impressed with the character that all must develop in order to realize the blessedness which is to be the reward of the pure in heart. If the books of Daniel and Revelation were better understood, the people of God would have an entirely different religious experience. We're gonna talk about the angel of the covenant in Revelation 10, but I first want to begin with this letter. Can you see it there? It says letter of an ex-Adventist. Not just an ex-Adventist, this is an ex-Adventist minister. And this minister writes, and I read, I can no longer agree to preach or teach the doctrines of the Seventh-day Adventist church or through my silence imply that I agree with them. But allow me to be plain and specific because I have been a student of the word and been sensitive to the Lord's leading and teaching. I no longer believe that the scripture supports the mission of the church, the three angels. I no longer believe that the SDA church is the remnant church. I don't believe in the investigative judgment or the pre-advent judgment. I no longer believe in Ellen White as the messenger of the Lord. I do not believe in the Sabbath as the seal of God. And I don't believe in the great controversy worldview. This is a minister that stood in God's pulpit and preached to the people of God for years and years. And mind you, it didn't just all of a sudden happen, you understand? progressively, incrementally, as he's standing before the people of God, doubting the inspiration of the word of God, he comes to the understanding. I don't believe this stuff. These people are a cult. they are fanatical, and they are strange. And here's my reasons. I challenge you, friends. Many of us are actually on the same path. Many of us have gone to our Adventist schools. I went to Academy. Oh, I remember Academy it was beautiful. The girls were beautiful, right? The boys were handsome, or at least the girls didn't say they were handsome. They, they act like they weren't handsome, but they were. We had special choir. I had special choir. I played in the jazz band. I, I, I went to academy. I understand what it's about. I was in the academy. I actually went and did assistant deaning in Colorado, and I remember doing a message one day, and as I was preaching, the Lord impressed my mind, and he said, there are drugs in the school. And I said, drugs in the school? Not where the people play the instruments so nicely. Drugs in the school? Not where everybody seems to be Adventist and happy to pray and sing. Not in an Adventist school. Oh, there's no sex going on at Adventist schools. No, none of that. There's no pornography watching at Adventist colleges and schools. There's none of that here. But the Lord impressed my mind, Andre, there's drugs in the school. Then I began to preach on a sermon called Aiken. And as I preached a sermon, young people came up and they came to me and said, Andre. And they took me to their rooms and they had their drugs inside the radio. They had the drugs inside their little pouches in their room, and they took them, and they brought them to me, and they showed me where they had them. And I said, have mercy in an Adventist school? Not in an Adventist school. You see, the problem is, friends, our young people don't know who they are. You say Seventh-day Adventists, they say, oh, they go to church on Saturday. That's not what Adventist is. You know, there are many churches that go to church on Saturdays. Adventist is not just someone who believes that the seventh day is the Sabbath, neither is one that simply believes that the Lord is about to come. There are other people that believe this. But we have a distinct message. Amen. We have a distinct experience that we're supposed to be having as a people of God, but we are asleep on it, and our young people say, Hey, I don't want falsativity. I don't want, I don't want, I want something real. Give me something substantive. Give me something that I can live with that will change my life. Give me something. But we act like this is a theological discussion. We just talk amongst ourselves. Oh, yes, I believe that this and this. And look, it has to be real. What does the gospel do in the life of the person that preaches and teaches it? Am I a kind Christian? Am I a loving Christian? We're studying. We're going to study. I just felt that needed to be said at this moment. Open your Bibles to the book of John, John chapter 7, John chapter 7, and in John chapter 7, we see Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles, in John chapter 7, beginning at verse 37, the last day of the feast. Jesus is there, and mind you, you must understand that the Feast of Tabernacles, the people would often gather together, and on the last day, they had this tradition where the priest would carry this water. And it was silence. As the priest is carrying this water, symbolizing this water of life, this purification that was supposed to take place, he's walking, and all of a sudden, in the midst of this silence, there's a cry that is heard. And notice what the Bible says in verse 37. It says, in the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, What did he say? If any man thirsts, let him come unto me, and what? He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Man, that's deep. That was the sermon. He was done. And as he says this, all eyes are now fixed on the living water, not this water that people are walking around with this religious form. No, the living water in human form, Jesus, and they're looking and they're saying, what manner of man is this? Notice the questions that are now raised after he makes this statement. It says in verse 40, many of the the people, therefore, when they heard these things said of a truth, this is a prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, shall shall Christ come out of Galilee? Have not the scripture says that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? It sounds like an Adventist debate. It sounds like a debate between theological information, but still no one has gone to the man and said, hey, where's the water? Seems like an argument about whether there's a a heavenly sanctuary or not, or whether that Ellen White is a prophet or not. And no one has gone to the man and said, where is the water? It's a problem. You see, as I travel from hither and yon, and as I go across the country and I preach and I see, I see the people of God without the power of the gospel. I see the people of God with a form and a shell of what religion looks like. But when the people come to take of the tree, there's no fruit. Friends, I challenge you. I challenge you today. I challenge you to change your ways. I challenge you no longer to look at this as a theological debate or, or a d- d- debater whether or not this is this or that. I ask you to go to the man and ask the man to give you living water. Notice again what the Bible says. Now the Pharisees have a problem with what's going on. Verse 45 says, then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees and they said unto them, what, what, why have you not brought him? What's going on? How come you haven't arrested him? The officer's answered and said, never a man spake like this man. I love what the pen inspiration says about this verse. She said, never a man spake like this because never a man lived like he lived. Never a man spake like this. How could he speak with such authority? and And I'm going to arrest him. But as he's speaking, I can't arrest him. He's so powerful. He's so awesome. He's so loving. There's something different about him. It's something different about the way he teaches and he preaches. I can't arrest him. And notice what they go on to say. Verse 48, have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who know of the law are cursed. Nicodemus said unto them, he came to Jesus by night being one of them. Doth our law judge any man before it hear him? And know not what he doth? They answered and said unto him, art thou also a Galilean? Search and look for out of Galilee arises, no you know what? So they're having a theological debate still. Nicodemus makes a point, though. So I can imagine now in this group of men, these groups of Pharisees, there are these men who say, you know what? He's got a point. We can't judge a man unless we catch the man in sin. That's what they're saying. They're thinking, hey, we got a point. We got to figure out a way to catch the man in sin. So, you know, they came up with a plan. In John chapter 8, Jesus went into the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning, he came again into the temple. And all the people came unto him and sat down and taught them. Can you imagine that? Yesterday, he said, I'm the living water. They said, I got to go get something to drink this morning. They're all gathered there. There are hundreds of thousands of people sitting around as Jesus is teaching in the temple. But there's a disturbance. Notice the verse. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the... Where is she at? She's in the midst. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto her, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very what? Now, you've got to think about this. My mind starts to wrap around this idea. This woman is not caught with a camera. She's caught in the act. Now my mind starts to wrap wrap around this idea that she's caught in the act. I I don't see her having many clothes on. If she's caught in the act, I don't see her uh, being clad as they put her in this picture. I see her as not fully clad. And I see her thrown in the midst of thousands of Seventh-day Adventists. I see her thrown there. And I can see the minds of the people going, kind of woman is this i see the minds of the people saying well we can't have this in church i see the i see the minds of the people and i see the leadership and i see the leadership there with their their stones ready but do you know what the problem is in this story when we preach this story and teach this story we often teach this story as if the woman is the center of the problem do you understand that the problem the center of the controversy is on jesus Listen now. They caught the woman in the act. They set her up. They entrapped her. They knew that she would fall into the dirt. They knew it. They brought her in to entrap Jesus, to get Jesus to say something that will make him break the... Now, who's this man, Jesus? I'm going to put a couple of verses up here. We won't go to all of them, but go to John chapter 1. Who is this man Jesus? And sometimes we need to ask ourselves these questions over and over and over again. Because sometimes when we think we know, we really don't let it sit and settle into our brain cells who this man Jesus was. Now, John chapter 1, look at verse 1. The Bible says, in the beginning was the? word, And the word was with God and the word was? Jesus is this word, my friends, and the same same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. In him, in this man, Jesus was life, and his life was the light. His life was the light of men. Notice what it says in verse 14. And the word was made what? Then the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of what? Hold on to those two words. The glory of God is consisted of two major components. What are the two components, my friends? Grace and truth. These are the components and the characteristics of God. They are both merciful and they are both truth. They cannot be separated one from the other. I can't preach a gospel that simply says, oh, the grace of God, the grace of God, the grace of God, the grace of God, and leave the truth of God out. And I can't preach a gospel that says the truth of God, the truth of God, the truth of God, and leave the grace of God out. They must be perfectly blended, what? Together. Together. And this is the Son of God. Notice what it says in verse 18. Verse 18 says, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he have what? He have declared them. Can you imagine this now? Jesus is the embodiment of God. He is their very expression, their very image of God. In fact, let's go to a verse that says the very idea. First, uh, Colossians chapter 1. Go to Colossians chapter 1. We're asking the question, who is Jesus? Who has this woman been thrown in front of? Colossians chapter 1, looking at verse number 15. When you have it, say amen. Colossians 1 in verse 15, the Bible says, who is the image of the invisible God? What kind of God is he? He's invisible, but how do you see God? Through what person? Jesus. So if you want to know what God is like, you have to look at his son. Notice what the Bible says, continuing on, and look at verse number 19. Verse number 19. For it pleased the Father that in him, in the Son, should all the fullness dwell. Wow. All the fullness of God in a person. So think about it. The woman is thrown in front of God. She's thrown in front of absolute perfection. She's thrown in front of this almighty one who called the worlds into existence simply by his word. That's power. And listen to me when I tell you I believe the word. I don't think this is a figment of my imagination, friends. This book is real and it is living. And if you believe the words in this book, it will change you from the inside out. If you believe the words in this book, I remember reading in Education, page 126, the fourth paragraph, it says the creative energies that call the worlds into existence is in the word of God. Man, this word imparts power, it begets life. Accepted by the will received into the soul, it brings with it the life of the infinite one. Christians are walking around without power when there's an infinite God. Who has made himself infinitely available with infinite power to those who believe the word so that they can live a life not only with the forgiveness of sin, but with the power to overcome sin. I want you to listen to what I'm saying to you because you can leave here. You can leave here today, change forever. You don't ever have to walk around here as a, 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 a lost a puppy dog with that lost his tail. Huh? You don't have to walk around here as if you're a slave to the enemy of your souls. You don't have to walk around like that. You don't have to walk around depressed. You don't have to walk around with the burdens of your life. You can leave them at the feet of Jesus and leave completely and totally changed. But let's go a little further. Who are the accusers? Go to Matthew chapter 7. Who Who are these accusers? Matthew chapter 7. Look at verse 29. Matthew 7, verse 29. When we have it, just say amen. These accusers are standing, and notice what Jesus says. I, I mean, the, the people say about Jesus and his teaching. It says, For he taught, talking about Jesus, for he taught them as one having what? Authority, Authority and not as what? Interesting. So the scribes taught, but they taught with a theory approach. They didn't teach based on their experience. They taught with an intellectual assent to information. Therefore, it's a debate amongst the people, but it's not an experience. Jesus taught based on his experience with the Father. But go to Matthew chapter 23 and verse 2. Matthew 23 and verse 2. Notice what the Bible says. Who are these scribes and Pharisees? What position do they have? Matthew 23 and verse 2. Notice what the Bible says. The scribes and the Pharisees sit in the Moses seat. Now, who's saying this? Jesus is because it's in red. So the scribes and Pharisees are the ones that are sitting in the position of authority. So mind you now, you have Jesus, God, and you have the accusers, the ones that represent the leadership. They're representing Moses to the people. Well, let's go a little further. What does Jesus say about the leadership? Go to Matthew 23. Now, this is is tough. This is tough language that we're about to read. Watch what he says, starting at verse 13. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, and what? Hypocrites. verse 14. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, and what? Verse 15. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, and what? Notice what it says in verse 16. Woe unto you, ye blind guys. Verse 17. Ye fools and blind. Notice what it says in verse 19. Ye fools and blind. These are some strong words for these people. Notice what it says in verse 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. Verse 24, ye blind guys. Verse 25, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. Verse 26, thou blind Pharisee. Verse 27, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. Man, that's a lot of negativity. But who is he saying it to? He's saying it to those who had the responsibility of leading the people, but who weren't leading the people. And listen, some of you might think I'm talking about a pastor, I'm talking about you as Seventh-day Adventist. I'm not talking about liberal or conservative, I'm talking about both. I'm talking about a people who have had the most wonderful privilege in Earth's history to carry the last message of warning to a dying world And we're comfortable. We're comfortable. Let's go a little further. Who's the broken? John chapter 8. Go back to John chapter 8. Go back to John chapter 8. Now that we have the picture, you you have what's going on, general picture. This is just the foundation of what we're studying right now. You have the general picture of what's going on. You have the Son of God, Jesus, standing there. You have the woman that's caught in adultery. In the very act, there's evidence, red-handed. You have the congregation that is all there. They observe. They're watching what Jesus is about to do. Now, let me ask you a question, just a quick quiz. What two components make up the glory of God? The glory of God consists of two components, grace and truth. Now watch when I tell you that this character of God is under attack. John chapter 8, look carefully again at verse number 3. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What sayest thou? Perfect setup. Now, Jesus knew that if he had answered the question, not guilty, then he would fall under the hatred and the respect of those who respected Moses' law. But if Jesus had said guilty, then he would have broken Roman law. And the Romans would have come and shortened his ministry. So if he had just said grace on one side, then he would have been in trouble. And if he had said truth on one side, then he would have been in trouble. So Jesus is the master. I'm telling you, Jesus is so smooth. He is the master of the most wonderful situation. Notice what he says. This they said, tempting who? Who's him? Jesus. But well, who's Jesus? Jesus. God, so when they say this, they're really attacking God. They're tempting God. God, what are you going to do about the sin problem? What are you going to do? Are you fair in how you judge? This, in reality, is Satan's accusation against God. God, what are you going to do about a church that is in rebellion against you, even though they name the name? What are you going to do? Notice what Jesus does. So when they had continued asking him, in other words, they kept asking, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? When they continued asking him, he said unto them, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. I like this. So if you're without sin, go ahead and pick up your stone. Throw it at her. And as he says this, In the same ending of the of the sentence, he kneels down. Now, listen to me, young people. Listen to me well. When Jesus hears this, he kneels down and he begins to write in the dirt the sins. Starts at the oldest, works his way down to the youngest. He starts at the oldest, he works his way down to the youngest. And he writes the name of the person and he writes the sin. He writes the name of the next person and he writes the sin. He writes the name of the next person and he writes the sin. It's clear that he is not an ordinary man. It's clear that he is God and he knows the very intents of the heart and he writes the sin in the dirt. You know why he didn't write in the stone. You know that right? You see, if he had written in his stone, there would have been no salvation even for those Pharisees, friends. But he writes it in dirt so when he gets up, he can sweep it away. Starts with the oldest and the oldest has a stone in his hand. Listen to me. Listen to me well. The oldest has a stone in his hand. He may have one of the smaller ones because he's a little older. He can't pick up bigger stones. And he has the stone in his hand and he's ready to throw it and he comes a little closer. He sees his name and he walks away. He drops a stone and he walks away. The next one comes with his stone and he leaves it and he walks away. The young person comes with a bigger stone because he worked out, you know. (laughs) He sees his sin and he walks away. But this is a problem. Each one of the Pharisees made a mistake. You see, they should have done what they did to the woman. You See, the woman was thrown in the, Mist. in the midst. She was at the feet of Jesus. Now Jesus is on the ground, riding in the dirt. The men who had the stones in their hand, they should have dropped the stones and fell at his Amen. Let me make this even more clear. I was doing a meeting. I was doing a meeting, and uh, in the meeting, we were dealing with how to do soul-winning. In the room, we are talking about what do you say to somebody if they were molested when they were a child? Well, how, do you, how do you answer that person? If they were little and they got beaten and, and, mis- uh, and abused. How, how do you answer a person when they say, where was God when that was going on? And I remember just posing the question as if it was an intellectual exercise. And in the room... Someone raised the question, but you could tell in the voice that it was not an intellectual exercise. You could tell in the voice when they asked the question, they had the experience. They had been molested when they were a child. And they began to weep and to cry and say, why would God allow a five-year-old girl to be molested? And she was still hanging on to her stone, you understand. And I remember a young man in the room who had gone through a same experience in the same room. I was amazed in the same room. A young man stood up and said, I've gone through the same experience. But he said, I left it at the feet of Jesus. He said, I've gone through the same thing and I left it at the feet of Jesus. I no longer have the stone. Some of you have anger problems. Some of you have resentment against your parents because they mistreated you and your parents have divorced and you're left broken and you say, where is God when my life is messed up like this? You have the stone in your hand. Some of you are saying, hey, the church, if the church had only treated me better, if they had only treated my child better, then my child would not be out of the church now. You have the stone in your hand. I want you to hear what I'm saying. Everybody in this room Ask yourself the question, what stone do you have in your hand? I want you to drop it. But instead of walking away, I want you to fall at the feet of Jesus. Now it's amazing what happens now. I want you to think with me now. It's amazing what happens here. The verse says, verse 8 and it says and again he stooped down and wrote on the ground and they which heard it being convicted by their own what conscience, went out one by one beginning at the eldest and even unto the last and Jesus was left what wait a second this doesn't even make sense there's a thousand people in the room but he is left there what Alone. Why is it alone? Because now he is the only one that has the right to make an accusation and to carry it out. So he is left alone. He's God all by himself. No one has the right to judge except him. Now, mind you, don't take that the wrong way. There are some people think that you can't judge. You, You know, every day when you get out of your bed, you make a judgment call. You know that, right? You decide how far the floor is to your foot. That's judgment. When you go to the bathroom and you look in the mirror, you say, oh, I need some help. (laughs) (laughs) That's judgment, friends. You understand that? You are given the ability to determine between right and wrong. You have the right to make that judgment. The only judgment you don't have a right to do is put somebody in hell. Or heaven. But everybody has a right to judge. You do it every single day. You're making a judgment call right now. Is this brother serious or he's a joke? (laughs) You're making that judgment call right now? But Jesus is left alone because no one has the right or authority to make another statement to this woman except Jesus. Now watch what happens. Watch what happens. It says, and Jesus was left alone. And the woman... What is she doing? What does the verse say? And the woman standing. I pay attention to the little things. Well, the woman was thrown at the feet of Jesus. But now Jesus got on the ground. And the woman is standing. The woman is standing. It seems to me that there's something transitioning here. There's a switching of positions that have taken place. The woman is standing. In the midst, when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Have no man condemned thee? Great question. Why did Jesus ask her the question? What did he want her to see? Verse 11, she said, no, man, Lord. Oh, I love that. You know why? Because now she has submitted herself in reality to be at the foot of Jesus. Before she was thrown there, she didn't come there by her own volition. She was thrown at the feet of Jesus, but now she has acknowledged him as the Lord. When somebody's your Lord, that means they're your master. When they're your lord, that means you are subjected yourself to being their slave, and you will do anything that that lord tells you to do. Amen. I want to ask you a question. Don't answer out loud, and I dare say, don't even answer in your own heart, because your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. But is Jesus your lord? Is he your lord? Does he have your heart? Does he have your warmest affections? Or does some boy at academy who doesn't even know how tall he's going to be, is that your boy? <laughs> does he have does that, that little girl, that little girl who's not even fully mature yet, right. you giving her your affections? She's doing like this with you, man. She's like this. Ooh. Playing with your heart. Ooh. I think I like him. I mean, I've been there. I've been there. I was to the academy. I know what it's like. There's something more sure than these fickle relationships that we get in so early. His name is Jesus. What's his name? Jesus. Do you know? I was teaching my literature evangelists. I was talking to them and training them. And I told them the secret, one of the secrets of doing literature evangelism, I said, you know, well, one of the secrets is you say the name of Jesus with reverence and softness and angels will draw near to soften the hearts of the people at the door. Oh, I remember the little girl, the, the young lady had gone out. There were two of my mission, two of my missionaries and they had gone out and they met this lady and the lady was so angry, so upset. Now, a little girl came and said to the lady, she said, uh. You know, Jesus loves you. And the lady changed her complete person. And you know what the lady did? Mind you, she did like this You're so beautiful. You're so beautiful. Something supernatural came over the woman when the name of Jesus was spoken with reference. I have a question. Do you love Jesus? Don't answer. Christ's Object Lessons, page 159, the first paragraph says, While speaking to God of poverty of heart, they will be swelling with self-pride. It didn't say while talking to a friend or one of the church members. It said while speaking to God. I ask you again. Does Jesus have your heart? Does he have your warmest affections? Your most joyous feelings, do they come when you talk about Jesus or do they come when you talk about a little video game? Do your warmest affections come when you're talking about Jesus and, and his character or do they come when you're playing basketball? Who has your warmest affections? This is not a game to me. Jesus did something for me, you understand? Like this woman caught in adultery. I've been caught in the act. You've been caught in the act. And you have a choice to make today, right now. You have a choice today, right now, today. Do you want to give Jesus your sin or do you want to keep walking with it? This is life or death. I'm speaking to you as if standing between the living and the dead. And I'm saying to you this morning, you have a choice to make. You choose Jesus. Or you walk away with your sin and you die in your sins. But Jesus says to her. She said, no, man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I Condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Those last words are even more more powerful than the actions that he took. The very declaration itself. Go and sin no more. Don't go do what got you in this place in the first place. Don't play with it. If you're having a problem with pornography, don't turn on the internet. Amen. Amen. And that plagues the majority of God's people. You have a problem with keeping your hands to yourself, brothers? Tie your hands up. And ladies, if you don't want to be touched, don't show it. Go and sin no more. And let me just tarry there for a moment. Ladies, let me ask you a question. What right does a man have to look upon your body who is not your husband? What right? If you look at the sanctuary, the sanctuary is covered. It's covered. Your body is for your husband. It's special. Don't give it up now. Brothers, you need to respect the ladies way more. They're not piece of meat. Amen. And Jesus said, go and sin no more. Well, it's impossible. Let me tell you right now. It's impossible for a man not to sin any, anymore without Jesus. So if I would ended that sentence earlier, I would have been an apostate. And anybody that teaches that you'll be sinning till Jesus comes is not a Seventh-day Adventist minister. Amen. Jesus can help you today. And I'm going to stop the sermon. I have much more. I didn't even get anywhere. But I'm going to stop the sermon. I'm going to make an appeal. This morning you have a choice to make. I'm not going to ask for any music, but this morning you heard Jesus speaking to your heart. And this morning you want to come to Jesus and be forever changed from the inside out. And I'm not making this appeal for everybody. This one's not for, I have another one for everyone. This one's specific. This one is you want to give your heart to Jesus. You haven't given your heart to Jesus before. And this morning, you want to give him your heart. If that's your decision this morning, I want you to raise your hand. Keep your hands lifted. This appeal is not for everyone, the next one is for everyone. This morning. Giving your heart to Jesus for the first time. If that's your decision, come forward. I saw your hands. Amen.
1: Amen. Amen.
0: Uh, There's somebody else. The Lord sent me here. There's somebody else this morning who needs to give their heart to Jesus for the first time. I mean, really give them your heart this morning. Is there another? Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. That's what the congregation should have done when the woman was coming up. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. Is there another? Amen. Is there another? It's you this morning that God is calling. Why walk away with your burdens this morning? Why wait for another time? What's the point? Is there another? There is another. My next appeal. You know you messed up. And you know you haven't walked the way God has asked you to walk. And this morning, you want to recommit to leaving everything at the foot of Jesus. I just want you to stand where you are. And I don't want you to lie. Some people stood because their friends stood and everybody else stood. Jesus knows the intents and the recesses of your heart. So if you stood, the angels in heaven are watching and they're saying, is this real? And you will be tested. The angels of the world are watching. And Lucifer said, this are a fake bunch of people. Amen. And right now you're recommitting yourself to Jesus and leaving everything on the altar.
1: more loving. If you feel convicted to come down, come down. Lord, I want to be mm and- another? You can come. In in my heart, Lord, I want to be more holy in my heart. Sing it out like it made it.